0: Maybe you or somebody that you have seen or in your life has said something like this before. I don't think I like my job very much. Nobody, right? Nobody. Um, You think you've been working too long at this same place to be getting paid the same amount. Your boss told you that you were going to get a promotion, and it's been years, and you feel so overlooked. You wonder if you're even needed there anymore. Maybe, maybe I should just quit. I'm done. My boss obviously doesn't care about me, and guess what? My coworkers—they're horrible. They have such terrible attitudes, and uh, well, they hardly do anything anyway. So why even bother? Maybe you've said or heard something like that before, and you know what? There is a lot of value in figuring out the logistics of that situation like it is good to figure out okay what is my relationship with my boss what is my purpose at work how do i influence and get along with my coworkers? and and those are all really good things to talk about but in this particular situation and in every situation in life what we need more than anything else is jesus jesus is enough jesus is enough for me Jesus is enough for you. Jesus is enough for all the kids across the world from every culture, every language, every country. Jesus is enough. And that's the theme of our series because that's the theme of Paul's letter to the Colossians that we've been studying. Jesus is enough. And I love how Paul starts this letter. And I I encourage you, if you have your Bible, to turn there. In your Bible to the book of Colossians. And if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. The words will be on the screen behind me. Uh, But we'd love to give you a free Bible before you leave today if if you so would like one. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1 looking at verses 15 through 20. And I love how Paul starts this letter because he's never met these people before that he's talking to. And so the first thing that he does, just like with any first century letter, there is a greeting. Paul's like, hello, I'm Paul. And then he prays for them. He writes out this wonderful prayer. And I wonder how often do we say we're going to pray for people and do we actually pray for them? One of the little tricks and tips in a situation like that, say, I'll pray for you. Okay, well, guess what? Pray for them right then and there. <laughs> just, just pray for them in the middle of the store or on the, in the parking lot or in the car or wherever you are. If you're on the phone... Pray with them on the phone. Send them a voicemail or a voice message. And if you're texting and say, I'll pray for you, text them your prayer. Write it in an email and send your prayer in an email. That's what Paul did, and I think it's a great practice for us to do. And so he does the greeting, he prays for them, and then the next thing he does is he writes this poem, this hymn about Jesus. And Paul has a lot of stuff to address the Colossian church with. He's going to tell them a lot of things. He's going to tell them a lot of things that they should be doing, a lot of commands about how they should live their life in light of Jesus. But Paul doesn't start with those commands. How often when we're trying to get somebody to do something, do we just tell them what to do? We just give them the command. Oh, oh, you messed up there. You better live this way. You better live this. You better do this. This is the right thing to do. So just do it. I don't understand why you can't do this. Just do it. Just come on. Do it. Live right. Think right. Get your act together. Just do it. It's like command, command, command. And Paul doesn't start that way. And I don't think that is a great effective way of getting people to do what you want them to do anyway. Paul gives them a picture of Jesus in this beautiful, majestic, amazing way, ever before he tells them anything about what he wants them to do. Paul writes in a letter in Romans and in Titus about how it is God's love and his kindness that leads people to repentance. And so often we want to force people to change their way of living by telling them what to do differently. And Paul doesn't really do that. He he says it's, it's this beautiful picture of who God is, of Jesus, of what he's done for you that makes all the difference in the world. And so Paul starts this letter by giving this hymn of Jesus, this poem about Jesus to help us see that Jesus really, truly is enough. Is Jesus enough for you? Because if he is, your life is going to be very different. You're going to live with a different purpose. You're going to find joy in situations that you shouldn't find. Nobody's finding joy in. You're going to be patient when life doesn't seem to be going your way. You're going to be living with a different purpose and a different mission if Jesus truly is enough for you. So what does it mean that Jesus is enough, right? Right? Who is Jesus exactly? That's important. And what does it mean for him to be enough? Like enough of what? Or enough for what? So Paul, I think, answers some of those questions in this beautiful hymn, in this beautiful poem that he writes to present Jesus in this beautiful, majestic way in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And he tells them that Jesus is the creator and he is the Savior. the Father is a spirit. He doesn't have a body, so he's invisible. You can't see him. You can't touch him. God, the Holy Spirit, is a spirit. And so again, you cannot see him. You cannot touch him. Jesus, God the Son, was also a spirit. But uniquely to Jesus, he became a human being, 100% God, 100% man. And so when we wonder and ask the question, well, what is God like? Like if I could sit next to God and talk to God, if I could touch him and, and hear him breathe, if I, could, if I could smell him, if I could do life with him, if I could sit and eat a meal with him, like what would he be like? What is God like? What does God care about? Who, who does he care about? Who does he hang out with? What is God like? How do you, how do you answer those questions if you cannot see God? Well, there were some people that lived 2,000 years ago that literally got to do that with God because they were sitting next to Jesus, the visible image, the embodiment of God. They got to see what Jesus would do, where he would go, how he would spend his time, what he would talk about, what he would dream about, and, and, and where he would go and they got to do that. They got to literally spend time with the visible image, the, the exact representation of God, the invisible God, Jesus is. And as I think about this word "image," I, I always think about this thing that Jesus taught, because I think it's so powerful. In Mark chapter 12, some people were asking Jesus this question, and they asked them the question, "Should I pay my taxes?" What a great question, right? And, and I just, I, they preface it by saying, you know, this isn't in the Bible, but it's like, do you know who the, is in charge of our government? Do you know the types of people that they are, how terrible they are? I mean, they don't even care about us at all. They take it all for themselves. They're such evil people, and I, we just, they don't care about God at all. They're so, so terrible. Like, should we pay our taxes to them? And Jesus says, sow me a Roman coin. Now don't fight me, this isn't a Roman coin, this is an American quarter. And I'll tell you, Jesus says, and when they handed it to him, they asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Jesus asked them, whose image is on the Roman coin? Does anyone know whose image was on the Roman coin? Caesar's was. Whose image is on the U.S. quarter? Anybody know? George Washington. There you go. So they answered, Caesar's, of course. And well then, Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. So Jesus begs the question for all of us to answer, what has God's image on it? That we should be giving to God. We do. You do. You were created in the image of God. You bear his image. And so we should give all of ourselves, all of who we are, to God. Just like we give these things to the image that is buried on them. Right? The Caesar's picture, that he gets it god's image is on us and so we should be giving ourselves to god and jesus is the perfect image of god the perfect representation of god now we are not exactly that right we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination um but the image idea right caesar he wasn't physically with them but his image was on the coin George Washington is not physically with us, but his image is on the coin. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then we read about how he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world, everything, was created through him and for him. So Paul tells us that Jesus existed before he was born on this planet 2,000 years ago. This is unique to Jesus. Like you and I, we weren't pre-existent somewhere. Jesus was. He was existed from all eternity past. And there was a moment in time when he became a human being, 100% God, 100% man. What's incredible to think about is Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians in about 60-ish AD. So that means Paul was saying there was a guy 60 years ago that was born as a human that existed for eternity prior to that. And there was a guy 30 years ago that died on a cross. And it's that guy, that man that you spent time with, that you ate with, that you listened to, that you went and sat on the hillside next to, that you rode in a boat. It was him that existed for all eternity. He created everything. If he existed before anything was created, what existed before Jesus? What existed before Jesus? The answer is... Nothing. That's right. <laughs> so if nothing existed before Jesus, he is the creator of it. And because he's the creator of it, he's also supreme over it. Uh, some translations use the word firstborn there, which indicates the status, the authority, the title. Jesus is in authority over everything. He is first place over everything. When Jesus walks into a room, everything in creation knows exactly who just showed up (laughs) and they know their place that jesus is supreme he is stronger than anything in all of creation so have you gone through any hard things recently just asking right (laughs) or know somebody who has we all go through hard things all of the time to one degree or another we're all in the middle of something hard But Jesus is supreme over that situation. He is in charge of, he is in control of, he is in authority over even that thing that seems to be controlling your life. A couple months ago, I got a TV, an awesome TV. And uh, it's a good TV. I like the TV very much. But when we got it, the screen was a little messed up. And now it, like, doesn't connect to the Internet via an Ethernet cable that you plug in. And this TV has been giving me a little bit of issues, I guess you should say. So I could have brought the TV to my friend and said, hey, friend, can you help me with this TV? I need a little help with this. Could you fix it? Maybe they they could give it a try. I could bring my TV to the doctor. The doctor is a smart person. He's been to school for a long time. He helps people get better all the time. He solves people's problems. He's a very smart person. I could bring my TV to the doctor and see if that would help. But who did I bring my TV to? The creator. The company that made it and said, hey, this is your TV. You designed it. You put it together. Fix it and they're working on it, (laughs) but you got to take it to the creator because that's what they made. And so when we face things in our life, we have to take it to the creator because he he made it. He knows. He knows how to fix it. He is in authority. He is supreme over it. Is anyone familiar with the song Waymaker? We've sung it a couple times in church here. Waymaker. Yeah, Jesus there's a part in there where the worship leader, whoever's singing it, if you listen to it on the radio, uh, there's like an ad lib part. And he's like, Jesus' name is above every other name. Jesus is above depression. Jesus is above loneliness. His name is above disease. His name is above cancer. Like, it's horrible and as life changing as those things are in your life. Jesus is in authority over those things. He he is supreme over those things. Like those things don't have ultimate say in what you do or how you live or what you operate in life. Jesus is in authority over those things. And guess what, too? The good news. Those things don't win in the end. Like depression doesn't win in the end. Loneliness doesn't win in the end. Disease does not win in the end. Cancer doesn't win in the end. Jesus wins in the end. Like there is coming a day where there will be no more crying, no more weeping, no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. Jesus is bringing that to happen. He is making it happen. He is over it all. He is not going to be controlled by anything that controls me and you. Jesus is in control of it all. He's over it all. Because he made it all. <laughs> everything. Everything you can see and everything you can't see. Did you know that there's things in this world that exist that you can't see? Like there is a whole reality of truth that we, in our finite human understanding, cannot fully see. We can't see. There's a story in the Old Testament that I love that illustrates the the power of knowing this. It's in 2 Kings chapter 6. And in this story, we meet a prophet. His name is Elisha. And Elisha has a servant. And there was a king, an evil man, that was trying to kill Elisha and this servant. And the king brought his army and surrounded Elisha and his servant, surrounded the city where they were staying in. This evil king had them all surrounded. And the servant woke up in the morning. He went outside of his tent or wherever he was staying, and he looked out along the hills, and he said, oh, no. He's like, the armies are here. This is probably my last day on this earth. We're done. So he turned around, and he went to go see Elisha, and he's like, uh, Master, um, <clears throat> I got some bad news for you. <laughs> we're going to die today. The king, his whole army is here. We're done. This is it. There's a few of us, and there's thousands of them. We, There's nothing we can do. So Elisha takes his servant out of wherever they were saying, and he told him this, 2 Kings chapter 6, do not be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Like, what if we believe that about the situations that we were looking at, that seem so oppressive, so horrible, so life-controlling, so we can't do anything about this. There is no hope. What if we look that right in the face and said there is more on my side than there is on that side and i can say that with confidence you can say that with confidence because god is on your side jesus is on your side and he is more than enough for you for whatever it is that you're facing in your life so elisha prayed open his eyes and may our eyes be open so that he may see, the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I'll let you read 2 Kings chapter 6 of how that ends, but let me just say, Elisha and his servant win, right? God wins in the end. So all of those things, even the things we can't see, everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus every beautiful work of art every sunrise every sunset every waterfall every planet everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus and he existed before everything else right and he holds all creation together he's active in holding it all together It's not the deistic understanding of a God who wound it all up in a watch and left it on a table and left it to do its thing and God disappeared. You can't believe in Jesus and hold that deistic understanding of God together. They don't go together. Jesus holds all creation together. How does he do that? Well, you could answer that question in a million different ways, but I want to answer it with you today by asking you to think about your body, okay? Look at your body. You all have a body. Why is your body not floating in space somewhere? You know, you don't lose a particle, and you have to bring it back and stick it back onto you. Why why are you stuck together, and you're not melting and falling onto the ground somewhere? What holds you together? It's actually pretty remarkable to think about because... At a very small, like if you take a microscope and you look right in as small as you can get, you're going to see something like this. It's an atom. An atom is a proton and a neutron in the nucleus that is surrounded by electrons, okay? woohoo! And the electrons have a negative charge. They repel themselves from each other like a magnet, right? But they're also attracted to the nucleus, which is positively charged. And so... (coughs) So what happens is they thought that electrons like kind of orbited this nucleus. The negative charges go around and they kind of stick together because of that. That's not what happens. They've learned since then that there are a probability that the electrons would be in a certain space around the nucleus. So, like, when you get to this outer ring, it's 95% chance that most of the electrons will be in there. So, the question asked, then, is why do the electrons not go away out of the orbit, out of the reach of the pole of the nucleus? Why not? Or why do the electrons not get sucked into the nucleus and just stick together? Why do they floats around the nucleus and of course there's some answers to it they're hard to comprehend in your mind but it's it's interesting question to think about so then these atoms they make up molecules molecules make up cells cells make up tissues tissues make up organs and organs make up the systems in your body okay one of the molecules in your body has a specific function to hold things together like that's what it's there for it holds things together it grabs a hold of stuff and it just keeps it all together the name of this molecule is laminin now if you've never seen a picture of laminin before I want to show it to you and you won't forget it it looks like that that is the molecule in your body in your cells that holds everything together and so Jesus Existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Just saying. So Jesus is the creator, and he holds all things together. He preexisted before he was born on this planet as a human being, and he was born for a very specific purpose, and that purpose was to be the savior of the world. And Paul again goes into that part of his poem, of his hymn here. It says, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So as poems and hymns and songs go, you don't always go in logical, linear order. Uh, we're actually going to start at the bottom down here with this idea that Jesus made peace with everything, meaning there was a time and place where things aren't at peace. right? That's why the world is not perfect, because there is a disconnect between creation and God. <laughs> there was sin entered into the world as a result of Adam and Eve choice to disobey god there was a division a breaking there was not a peace between creation and god and he made peace by means of Christ's blood on the cross when jesus died his blood paid for the penalty of sin and it's without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness of sin you're not at peace with somebody in your life because you haven't forgiven them forgiveness brings things back together, puts things back into peace. And you say the cross, well, the cross is central to Jesus and Jesus' mission. And guess what? For all eternity, when you're in heaven, when we're in heaven, we're singing praises. You know, what's the worship song on the soundtrack in heaven? Well, Revelation, the book of Revelation gives us a window into what's on the soundtrack in heaven, and it's this worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Out of all the things that we could be singing to Jesus about Jesus, we're singing worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. It's the cross, it's the central element, the central theme, the central event that defines Jesus and what he's done for us, for the world. To bring it back into this right relationship. That's what the word reconciled means. Through him, God reconciled everything to himself, bringing back into a right relationship. It's how the cross is how he rescued the world from sin. He brought a sinner like me back into a right relationship with God. It's the cross. But why is the cross enough? Why is Jesus' death on the cross capable of? reconciling you with god because i don't know if you knew this but there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of people that died on crosses in the roman empire like many many people died on the cross why was jesus's death any different i think paul gives us an answer by saying that it was god in all his fullness was pleased to live in christ There was something special about Jesus. He was perfect. You're not. 100% God had no sin to pay for, had no reason to die. But on that moment, he took on our sin, the sin of the world, the penalty of the world upon himself, and he paid for it. So that when he came back from the dead, you don't have to pay for it. He gives you his perfection and his righteousness in exchange. He died for it so that you could live. That's a good thing. That's a good news. That's a good exchange. He took our penalty of sin on himself. And because of this type of thing, he is first in everything. And I wonder, is he first in your life? Like when you run into a situation in your life, do you run to Jesus first? Or is he like down the lane, down the chain? Do you, when you get paid, a paycheck, whenever you do that, do you put Jesus first in that moment of testing? Oh man, I got this thing now. What am I going to do with it? Jesus first. How about your time? What you, you got some free time to, to relax or set up your schedule, your routine. Where does Jesus come? Is he first? Jesus taught that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all of these things will be added unto us. So you want more money? You want more time? You want a better house, a better job? You're working to make yourself a better person. You've got all these goals and all these plans. Okay, good. If you pursue those things first, you probably won't get them. But if you pursue Jesus first, God has a way. Remember, he's the creator. He put this all into motion. He has a way of giving you those things. Maybe not the way that you necessarily want them, but in the way that God, in his sovereignty and in his plan, gives them to you that is best for you. we got to put Jesus first. He's first in the, those who rise from the dead. He is the first in the resurrection. You're going to be resurrected one day. Everybody is going to be resurrected one day. That means your body is going to come out of the ground. It's not a spiritual thing. Eternity is not necessarily a spiritual reality. It's a physical reality, albeit glorified, of course, and slightly different. But it's still a physical reality. Jesus was the first one to come back from the dead, never to die again. Imagine Lazarus. Jesus was like, "Come back to life," and Lazarus is like, "What? Never, what is this experience?" And Lazarus had to die again. How terrible is that? Got to die twice, man. But Jesus, when he came back from the dead, he he, he resurrected. He's never going to die again. In First Thessalonians chapter four, it talks about how those that are believers in Jesus will be resurrected. And those who have passed away, believers in Jesus, will be resurrected. In Revelation chapter 20, we talk about others being resurrected, everyone being resurrected. Even those who aren't in heaven, in a place separated from God forever called hell, will be resurrected. It's not a spiritual reality from all eternity. There's a physical, albeit resurrected reality for all eternity. And until we get there... Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. Jesus is in control here of the church, of all the believers, right? He's the leader. We want to follow him. We want to worship him. He's, we do all of these things for him. And we, his people, are his body, his arms that are reaching out to those that are in need, his feet that are taking the good news of the gospel to people all over the world. We are his body. He is the head. He is the one that's in charge. Of it all. And so believer in Jesus, you are a part of the body of Christ. You are a part of the big C church, they call it, the universal church, which every believer in all of the world is a part of. And then within that big body, there are small local individual bodies that connect us. Church is a part of. But over all of that, united in Jesus, He is the head of it all. He is in charge. And so today I hope that you have a better understanding of who Jesus is. And a beautiful picture from this poem, from Paul, this song, this hymn about Jesus, about how amazing, how majestic he is. That he is creator. He is savior. He is Lord. He is our king. And we should worship him. And we should obey him. And if we really believe that he is enough, if Jesus is enough, then our world and our life would be as it should be, or as we wished it would be, because it's the way God has designed it to work.